All right. Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Daniel chapter 9? This morning, we're going to be in the last eight verses, verses 20 through 27 of Daniel 9. As you find your place, I, wear, I'm not, I don't have any announcements. We're going to save all of that to the end. I want to just make a mention of uh, what I'm going to be preaching and how we're going to approach this uh, together this morning. And just uh, a brief caveat. This is a difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, most scholars, most Old Testament scholars would affirm this is the most difficult passage of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. Um, if, if you have approached this and always been told this is easy, uh, I got news for you. Somebody's not been honest with you, okay? This is difficult. And I don't normally do this, but I'm just going to say this from the outset. I'm not really sure how long it's going to take me to get through this today. And so if you're new with us, that's not normal. I normally preach about 40 minutes on Sunday morning. I cannot guarantee you that I'm going to get through this in 40 minutes. And 11 o'clock small group leaders, I'm going to just apologize at the outset. I'm going to go until I'm done. Okay. And I mean that I'm, I'm being as serious as I can be. I'm going to go until I'm done because I can't leave some things unsaid as we walk through this. Um, I'm not going to say everything there is to say about these eight verses of Daniel chapter nine, but I'm going to say everything that I need to say. So if you need to slip out and get a cup of coffee and come back in, I recognize the Lord has a sense of humor. If there is a, my least favorite Sunday of the year, it's this one because I hate time change. I hate it with, I think it's dumb. I wish we would not do it. I specifically hate springing forward. But yet here I am springing forward, preaching the hardest verses in all of the Old Testament. And here you are going to listen to them. And so the Lord has a sense of humor and we will make it through. Would you stand with me? Because we believe this is the word of the Lord and we would like to honor it as such this morning. Starting in verse 20 of Daniel chapter nine. While I was speaking and praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And here is the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall... Uh, be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that your word is true. Would you illuminate our hearts by it? Would you help me, God, this morning? I seek to explain as the very best as I can this text to our congregation. Father, would we first have open hearts and minds as we approach your word? And two, would we see Jesus in it? Because all scripture is Christian scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I've entitled this message, A Glimpse of God's Glorious Plan, because I believe that is what it is. If anything, these verses should teach us this. When God pulls back the curtain and reveals to us his plan, we are, or should be, awestruck. Because we are finite and limited and he is infinite and unlimited and his understanding no man can fathom. And I believe that is what we are seeing here. We are getting a glimpse from Daniel's perspective into the future. And it is awe-inspiring and at times confusing for us. We must begin first with an understanding of how do we even approach difficult passages of Scripture. And I think this is a testimony to our church first, because we as a church believe that all Scripture is God's Word and that all Scripture is Christian Scripture, and therefore we should preach all Scripture to the church. It's how we approach the Bible here as a congregation. However, we do recognize that some scripture, some passages are more easily understood than others. And this has been the position of the church for a very long time. Coming out of the Reformation, there were several confessions of the Protestant church that have helped define the last several hundred years. The grandfather of them all is known as the Westminster Confession. In the first chapter of the Westminster Confession, we read this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of scripture or other that not only are they learned, but the unlearned in a due, in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That's a very old-fashioned way of saying some things in scripture aren't all that clear, but the things that are necessary unto salvation are. Later in the Westminster Confession, we read the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it may be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. That means when we get to something in scripture we don't fully understand, we don't build our house on that. We build our house on other places that are more clear and then use that and go to it and have better understanding where scripture interprets scripture, which is what we will seek to do today. But make no mistake, for us to say that we are students of God's word, it is going to mean, and dedicated to it as a congregation, it is going to mean that we come to all scripture. 
and seek by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our congregation to have our hearts and minds illuminated by it and to understand it. But it also means this. The end of Daniel chapter 9 is what we would categorize as a congregation as third order doctrine. If you've ever taken Connect class with me, which I'll be teaching when this is over, if you still want to hear me go talk some more, I talk about first, second, and third order doctrine. This is squarely third order doctrine, which means if for the next however long I talk, you disagree with me, we still want you to be a part of this church. There are likely elders that serve on our elder council who will disagree with much of what I have to say today. I don't believe they'll disagree with my conclusion, but they're going to disagree with some of my exegesis of the text. And it's fine. It's fine. Okay? So allow this to be a moment where you, with an open mind, hear me out and maybe disagree with me, but recognize that together as a congregation, we don't have to agree on all things, which is why we have a system of core beliefs as a church that say these are the things that we agree on. And I can promise you, Daniel chapter nine is not in them. For some of you, you grew up in churches that talked about Daniel nine a lot. Maybe these have been very influential to you. If you turn on late night prophetic radio or you go search this on YouTube, you're going to find pastors that speak about this text as if it is abundantly clear to them and that anyone else that has any other understanding of it is obviously wrong. These people are kidding themselves. So as I was preparing this this week, and and I spent more time in sermon prep for this sermon than, I spent a lot of time in sermon prep every week, but I spent more this week. This has been on my mind all week. I just started making some notes of questions that I think people need to ask when they come to this text. Here are the questions. And by the way, these aren't all of them. What are the 70 weeks of Daniel? That's the first one, right? Are we supposed to understand these as literal weeks, literal weeks of years, or figurative periods of time? Regardless of if it's literal or figurative, when do the 70 weeks begin? Does it begin with the exile? If so, is that in 605, 594, or 586 BC? Does it begin with the return of exile? And if so, is that in 538, 548, or 445 BC? And then when does it end? Do the 70 weeks end with Antiochus Epiphanes in 167, like Daniel 8? Does it begin with the birth of Christ, the baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the destruction of the temple by Titus in 70 AD, or sometime yet in the future? What was the word that went out to restore in the beginning of this passage? And whose word is it? Who is the anointed one, also called a prince in verse 25? Is this the same anointed one and prince mentioned later? Is the first seven weeks and the next 62 weeks the same period of time or separate periods of time? Who is the anointed one cut off in verse 26? Is the same anointed one in verse 25? Is the same as the prince in verse 26? If not, who is that guy then? Are verses 26 and 27 consecutive or concurrent events? Who makes the covenant in verse 27? Is it a good covenant or a bad covenant? Who puts an end to sacrifice in verse 27? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Who comes on the wings of abomination? We know that's a bad thing. And what does that even mean? Again, 
Anyone who claims that Daniel 9 is perfectly clear is kidding themselves and lying to you. But we are going to do our dead level best here. I have changed my mind at different times during the week. But fortunately, the beginning of Daniel, this section of Daniel 9, is fairly easy. So let's start with what's easy, and we will then move into what is (laughs) difficult. First, the Lord answers Daniel's prayer. What's good is we know the context of the vision. The context of the vision is what I preached last week. Daniel, on his face, before the Lord, having read Scripture in Jeremiah that said after 70 years, that 70 years, God would punish Babylon and restore Israel. And Daniel late in life has come to that moment where he knows it is soon and he is on his face pleading before the Lord that the Lord would forgive his sin, the iniquities of the people, and that he would restore Israel and Jerusalem. That is Daniel's prayer, and it is that prayer in which the Lord answers Daniel. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, that's Gabriel the angel that came to him in Daniel 8, um, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So the vision of Daniel 9 must, I'm only going to say must twice in this whole sermon, I think. This is the first. It must be read in context of Daniel's prayer. To take it out of the context of Daniel's prayer and make it into something else is to do eisegesis and not exegesis. It means that, we, that we've taken it and we've made it say something and fit into a time period that it's not intended to fit, Okay. Daniel makes clear, I am, he is still praying. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel hadn't seen the evening sacrifice in decades. The evening sacrifice had ceased when Daniel was a teenager. And yet here Daniel is still remembering that it's the time of the evening sacrifice. So he's still very much in Hebrew mode here and he's praying during this time and swiftly comes in Gabriel. I would love to see what this looks like, right? Swiftly, we're told, Gabriel comes in and he says, he made me understand, speaking with me saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell you Uh, For you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. So Daniel's praying, Gabriel shows up, and what does he say? He says, Daniel, God loves you, and God hears your prayer, and here's going to be the answer. Now, can we just stop for 10 seconds and recognize that, that as we talked about prayer last week and confession, and that weighed heavy, I, I believe, on, on the hearts of many. Hear, hear the words of Gabriel. God loves you. God hears your prayer. And God's going to answer your prayer. I believe this. That, that this is, that, that we may not get a vision from Gabriel. I'll say we won't get a vision from Gabriel because we have the Holy Scripture now in front of us. And can go to it and understand the certain will of God. But Gabriel comes to speak to Daniel as he is repenting of the sins of his people and praying for the return of exile. God says, yes. And then Gabriel says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 
And he is going to answer him, but the answer is going to be this glimpse into the plan of God, which from a finite perspective, surely to Daniel and still to us, even though we get to look back on much of it and say, okay, I think this is what this meant and still means, it's still at times difficult, but God is going to answer him. In verse 24, we begin the vision. And we need to talk about how we should approach these 70 weeks. Look at verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both visions and profit and to anoint a most holy place. So where, where Gabriel begins is by summarizing the entire vision. That is what verse 24 is. It is a summary of the vision. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. So it's going to be a vision that lasts for 70 weeks and it's going to accomplish certain things. Now, when Daniel hears 70 weeks, we have to put ourselves in Daniel's mindset for a minute and think as like an Old Testament Hebrew would think, because when he hears 70 weeks, there are things that his mind automatically goes to that ours may not. And if our mind doesn't go to it, then it's going to affect the way that we look at the rest of the prophecy. Numbers in the Old Testament are meaningful. They're very meaningful. And sometimes, I think actually less often, than not, they are literal numbers. There are times where the, a number will appear in the Old Testament and it will, it will be a literal number. For instance, in Leviticus 23, six days shall, be, shall work be done, but on the seventh day in a Sabbath of sol- is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Seven is a, is a literal number here. It's in, it, we still have it today, right? It's seven, week, seven days in a week. But the number seven, when it appears in other places in the Old Testament and the New, is not intended to be a literal number, but a figurative number because it is the number of completion. From the beginning, the number seven was important to the work of God. And so when we see that number appear, or exponents of that number, right? Seven, 70, or multiplications of it, seven times 70. It should pique our minds to what God is doing. So sometimes it is an actual count of days and sometimes it is not. We continue reading in Leviticus 23, starting verse 15, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So verse three of of Leviticus 23 establishes Sabbath rest on the seventh day of the week. And Leviticus 23, 15 and 16 establish what is known as the Feast of Weeks, which is seven times seven, 49. And then on the 50th day, they have what's known as the Feast of Weeks. We call this Pentecost because all of the Jewish people were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks when the Holy Spirit came, all right? So it's 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover, right? And so we're starting to see this establishment within God's law of sevens, seven being the days of the week and resting, and then seven times seven of the weeks getting to 
the feast of weeks. But then when we get to 25, it gets even, Leviticus 25, it gets even bigger, right? In verses two and three, we read, speak to the people of the Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, you shall sow your field. And for six years, you shall prune your vineyard and gather it in fruits. And so what's established in Leviticus 25 is not days or weeks, but years, that they're supposed to rotate their crops. I mean, that, that's really what it's saying. Is you're supposed to plant for six years, and on the seventh, you're supposed to let the land rest. But then it gets even bigger from there. Starting in verse eight of Leviticus 25, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the times of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet of the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you with each of you shall return to his property and each shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. It, it, in it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And you say, okay, why are we in Leviticus? What in the world's happening? Because this is what Daniel would think about. Inevitably, when Daniel hears this 70 weeks, Daniel's mind begins to go through these sevens of the Old Testament law. Seven days in a week with a day of rest, seven weeks after Passover for the Feast of Weeks, seven, resting every seven years, resting the land every seven years, and then every seven times seven being 49, you're going to have a 50th year, which is a jubilee year, when everything would be restored, when the people would be restored to their land. This is what Daniel would have thought. And so when Gabriel appears and tells him, when Gabriel appears and tells him that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, Daniel's mind instantaneously goes to these sevens. And so the way that Daniel very likely heard this and the way that most scholars today hear it, even though they're going to ultimately apply it differently, is that what Gabriel is describing is not actually seven weeks or 70 weeks, but Daniel is describing 70, the, the literal translation is actually 70 sevens, that it's 70 times seven, which would be 490. And 490 would be this super jubilee. Going back to the 49th and then into the 50th year. That this is a, this is a work of the Lord. So, so then we have, this, we have these weeks representing years. And we're still not gotten to whether they're literal or, or, or figurative years. But it's this extended period of time where the Lord is going to do the work to bring his people back and to atone for sin. And then verse 24 tells us the six things that are accomplished in the vision. This is my second must. Are you ready? My first must was it must be in context of Daniel's prayer. The second must is your understanding of the vision of Daniel 9 must do these six things. If it doesn't do these six things, go back and try again because the Bible says it's going to do these six things. Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and profit, 
and anoint a most holy place. Most of this deals directly with Daniel's prayer, asking God for forgiveness of sin. And, he, and, and this is what Gabriel says that is going to be accomplished in the vision. Transgression will be no more. Sin will be no more. Iniquity will be atoned for. But not only will sins be forgiven, there will now be an everlasting righteousness that vision and prophecy will be sealed. Sealed, by the way, doesn't mean to hide. It means to authenticate. It's like a king putting his signet on something, saying, this is from me. And ultimately to anoint a most holy place that, that not only is sin going to be dealt with, but something is going to be established that is an everlasting holy and righteousness that is established by God himself. This is the purpose of the vision. So Daniel hears these sevens and seventies and his mind goes to this work of God. And then Gabriel tells him it's going to accomplish these things. It's going to do away with sin and establish righteousness. So as we approach the actual verses uh, breaking down the weeks, the 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years, 77s of Daniel chapter nine. We must keep these things in our minds. We must keep it in context of Daniel nine. We must keep it in context of the Hebrew Old Testament. And we must understand that it will accomplish these things, ridding, ridding the world of sin and establishing righteousness. So then dividing and discerning the 70 weeks. I want to quote someone from you. This is one of my favorite modern preachers. His name is Alistair Begg. If you want to listen to good modern preaching, listen to Alistair Begg. Number one, he preaches with um, a uh, Irish accent, right? Scottish accent, something like that. And uh, so it always sounds better when it's coming from Alistair Begg. Um, but two, he is a brilliant scholar, a, an, an incredible preacher, preaches with a pastoral heart, and several years ago was preaching in his church through Daniel chapter nine. And when he got to this section, Alistair Begg said this, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I am about to now unfold will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. And I'm going to agree with Beg here and say, I may change my mind midstream. I hope not. I think I have settled the matter at least for where I stand this morning. But if you find me next week, I may have changed my mind. I changed my mind in the middle of writing this sermon and I will show you where here in just a moment. Some of you are already saying, I'm already confused. Well, just hold on. There are three distinct ways that we should think, that there are three, uh, sorry, there, there are a couple of questions that we have to ask from the outset here as we look at the contents of the vision. I think the most important, or one of the most important, is how are we actually thinking about the time periods that are presented? And there's a couple of main questions. Number one, most scholars, very few, would actually see this as weeks. Nearly all see it as years. So 490 years that are being presented here. But are those 490 years literal years, meaning you could count them on a calendar, or are they figurative years, that they are representing something that the Lord is doing? That is a very important question that we must ask. The second question that we must ask, though, 
is are the seven weeks, the first seven weeks and the second, the 62 weeks, are those intended to be taken together concurrently? Is it just a weird way of saying 16, or is it just a, a weird way of saying, sorry, not 62 weeks, it should be 42 weeks. I had 62 in my notes. Uh, 42 weeks, is it just a weird way of saying 49 weeks, seven and 42, which is the way some English Bibles translate it, or is there a period? Is it seven weeks, which is one period, and 42 weeks, which is another period. I changed my mind this week. This is where I changed my mind. I was approaching this in my studies thinking that it was just a strange way in the Hebrew of saying one period that was 49 weeks long. But the more study that I did and and the more I looked at it, I began to come to the conclusion that what is being described here is actually three unique periods of time. Seven weeks, 42 weeks, one week. But, and those weeks represent years, so it would be seven years, 42 years, seven years. We're multiplying by the number of days in the weeks, but not literal years. That these are figurative periods of time that is being represented here. The first, the seven weeks or seven years, a relatively restricted period of time. The next, the 42 weeks, a relatively extended period of time. And the final one week or seven years, a clearly climactic time. Here's why I landed there. First, because math and prophecy aren't good bedfellows. I don't don't believe we're intended to do a whole lot of math when we're coming to scripture. I think we end up getting into, we end up getting into places that we're not supposed to get. And we ultimately strain a gnat to make, make the math work perfectly. There are people that really think these are literal years and they try to trace it from one point uh, somewhere back in Daniel's day or after to some point in Jesus's day. And, and you really end up, uh, look, you can find people that have worked the math out, but I'm going to be, be honest with you. I think they're, they're, they're really begging the question that isn't intentional. This is apocalyptic literature. It is by design, highly symbolic. It takes common and uncommon imagery and uses it to foretell the work of God. And so when we get to prophetic, particularly apocalyptic literature, I will very rarely take numbers to be literal numbers. I think they're figurative. And here there are three different periods of time Again, one relatively restrictive, the second one, a relatively extended period of time, and then one that is obviously climactic at the end. So the first seven weeks or years representing exile and return. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So this is a period of time that is, rel- that is relatively restrictive. It is a short period of time. And in this short period of time, this, this initial seven weeks, we have to ask what is happening in this text. If you take the seven and the 42 as combined, you're probably not going to agree with me here, but I just want you to hold on. And, and, and truthfully, I'm taking in this section what is likely a minority position, Okay. Most people, whether they're taking these as literal or figurative years, begin the work later than I do, begin the starting point later than I do. But as I was reading this week, I just became convinced. I was like, I really think that what, when we're supposed to start the clock is not after Daniel, but when we're supposed to start the clock is before Daniel. 
Because what's Daniel doing in this prayer? Daniel is reading in Jeremiah in this prayer. And, and because he's reading in Jeremiah, he's reading a prophecy in Jeremiah in this prayer, I tend to think that, that what's happening here is that this first period of time is looking back on that word of Jeremiah. That the word that went out to rebuild is actually Jeremiah's prophecy that would have been prophesied somewhere around 594 BC. It's after Daniel was taken into captivity, but not very long. It's what Daniel's reading and believing. And we looked last week at Jeremiah 25, where uh, the Lord says that for 70 years, uh, Babylon will rule in Israel, or will rule over Israel and have them in exile, but he will punish Israel. In Jeremiah 29, God speaks about in positive terms what he's going to do when that period's over. In Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11, we read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. By the way, if you use Jeremiah 29, 11 for anything other than the restoration of Israel out of exile, you're, you're incorrect, okay? That's what it's about because this is what the prophecy is about. Jeremiah has said in two places, in chapter 25 and 29, that the word of the Lord comes through Jeremiah. So what is the word that went out in verse 25? The word that goes out in verse 25 to restore and build Jerusalem, I believe is Jeremiah's prophecy. So that's where the first period of time starts. It doesn't start later, but it begins there. When does it end? I believe it ends with, Cyrus's decree, Cyrus the Great, his decree to restore Israel and to begin sending Hebrews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and then eventually, a, a generation later, to rebuild, uh, the, uh, rebuild the, uh, the wall around Jerusalem. So then in verse 25, we come to this question. Who is then the anointed one at the end of that? I began this week thinking the, the anointed one at the end of verse 25 is Jesus. I don't believe it's Jesus now. I believe it's Cyrus the Great. That verse, verse 25 is actually the word that went out is Jeremiah's word. And it's fulfilled, it's ended with the decree that they will then go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And say, so wait, isn't that, why in the world would... Cyrus the Great, this king of Persia, be considered an anointed one. You ready? It's when I read this. I was like, oh, because the Bible calls him one. Look at, look at Isaiah 45. Now, here's what you got to know about Isaiah. Isaiah lived generations before. Isaiah is somewhere about 160 years before all of this is happening, Okay. Isaiah makes a prophecy in Isaiah 45 about the eventual restoration of Israel after his, what he's prophesying is God's judgment on them in exile. And here's what Isaiah does. Incredibly, a century and a half before the guy is alive, he names him. Look at verse 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, who makes right hand, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So Isaiah, 100 and 
let's just round it out, 150 years before all of this takes place, actually names the king that's not alive yet that will be the one that the Lord will use to begin the process of restoring Israel. And what does he call him? Thus says the Lord to his anointed. So if the word that goes forth at the beginning of this verse is Jeremiah's word of prophecy, then the anointed one at the end of this period of time is not yet Jesus, he's the next one, but here it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 45. It's Cyrus the Great, who the Lord establishes, remember what's the theme of Daniel, that the Lord establishes and rises up empires and tears them down. And the Lord establishes his little a anointed one, not the Messiah, but one that the Lord would raise up to do this very work. And he does it. In Ezra chapter one, we read in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, there, the, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he, uh, so that he, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So Ezra chapter one fulfills Jeremiah 27. It fulfills Isaiah 45. And I believe it fulfills the first period of time in Daniel chapter nine. Now you may not believe it fulfills the first period of time in Daniel chapter nine, but you have to believe it fulfills the others because Ezra says it does. Isaiah had told us that this one would come who he calls an anointed one. And he fulfills that word. And so I think this fit, if we're going to use scripture to interpret scripture, the best fit for that first period of time, that limited period of time is the exile of God's people, which ends at the restoration of Jerusalem. And the restoration of Jerusalem begins with the decree of Cyrus the Great. Then we get to the next 42 weeks, the longest period of time, a relatively long period of time representing the troubled time in Israel during the second temple period. Look at the end of verse 25. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built. And again, with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. So what is this next extended period of time? It is what is known by scholars, by historians even, as the second temple period. This is the time between that starts... With, when Cyrus the Great says you can go back um, to Ezra and then Artaxerxes says you can go back to Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and reestablish Judah in the promised land. That this is an extended period of time. It's a period of time that lasts for close to 500 years. And during this time, it is certainly what is described in verse 25. It is a troubled time. And it's why it says it shall be, be again with squares and moat, that this is, that it was an organized time, but they needed a moat. They were always at war. And trust me, they were always at war from the very beginning. The book of Nehemiah records opposition from surrounding nations of them rebuilding Jerusalem. As we saw in Daniel chapter eight, there would come, the, the Greeks would come and one would arise in power and Greeks who would greatly persecute Israel. And then we know from Jesus's day that here's Rome in Israel persecuting 
the people of God there. So it is easy to see this next 42 weeks as that period of time. There's not a lot we need to say about this because I really think this easily fits. That that first period of time is exile up to the return. The second period of time is the return to the day of Jesus. Then it starts to get a little more complicated. And we get to the final week, a final divided week, representing the first and second advent of Christ. This is the final seven, a clearly climactic time. Now, when we come to verses 26 and 27, which is where we will spend the rest of our time, you have to ask, I think, a a very important question and one that I'm going to answer in a very specific way. And it definitely matters for the way that you're going to interpret this. And that is, do you take verse 27 or verse 26 and verse 27 as concurrent events or as consecutive events. For instance, should you read it as we so often do with most everything else in the Bible, from 26, as if it is telling a story that ends at the end of verse 27? Or should we take verse 26 and take verse 27 and lay them on top of each other? You say, why in the world would we do that? Well, it is actually something that Hebrew literature is known for particularly Hebrew prophecy. I actually think this is such a difficult passage to understand because there are two uh, literary devices that are common in Hebrew prophecy that are at play here. The first is that I believe that these are concurrent events, meaning what's being described in verse 26 and what's being described in verse 27 is the same thing, okay? That we take one and we lay it on top of the other. The other thing, and again, contributing to the difficulty, is another device that's very common in Hebrew prophecy, even in the prophecy of the New Testament, I'm going to show you a place where Jesus does it, known as telescoping. If you look through a telescope on two different, because you're looking with just one eye, right, and you're looking way in the, in the, in the, in the distance, if you look on two different objects, in that telescope, those objects may look like they're right side by side of each other. But if you actually walked up to them, you may find that one is closer to you than the other one. And that's very common in Hebrew prophecy. Hebrew prophecy very often talks about both the things that would happen in the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus as if they're happening at the same time. We living in the middle of that time know that some of it happened in the first and some of it is not yet, right? I often refer to this in my preaching as now, not yet. And I think that's what we're seeing here. So we're gonna have two verses that we're gonna lay on top of each other and we're gonna view some of it as if we're looking through a telescope and there's going to be events that are gonna seem side by side, but they're not really side by side. Does that make sense to you? It's probably clear as mud at this point, but as I walk through it, I hope you're going to see it. So the way that I've outlined it in your notes for you is take verse 26 and verse 27, break it into three parts, and show you how the first part of verse 26 directly corresponds to the first part of verse 27, and then likewise with the second and the third. So let's look at verse 26, the first part. After the 62 weeks, so after that second period, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is not the same anointed one as in verse 25. This is a different guy. This is Jesus. 
You say, why, why do I think this is Jesus? Because it is at the end of the 62 weeks. What happens at the end of exile and return in scripture, just in the narrative of, uh, that God is telling us in his word, after the people of God return, nothing else really happens until what? Jesus comes. And so after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. You say, was that a good description of Jesus? Absolutely, it's a good description of Jesus. Look at Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was what? Cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We all affirm, all Christians affirm that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. And I think Daniel is using Isaiah's terminology that an anointed one would be cut off. And what does Isaiah say about the Messiah, that he would be cut off. So verse 62, this period of time begins with Jesus. Now, what we can't really get into is when exactly this begins, which is why I think it's important just to set the math aside. You could say this begins with the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, or the ascension of Jesus. And by the way, I read scholars this week that say all of those things. <laughs> I'm telling you, people disagree on this. I don't think it matters. I really don't think it matters because I'm not tied to trying to do math. The answer is Jesus, that he is the one. Now, Here's where I'm going to part ways with some of you, okay? If we're going to lay verse 26 and 27 on top of each other, and we're gonna see those three parts as relating to each other and concurring events, some of which get telescoped. If the beginning of verse 26, the anointed one who shall be cut off and shall have nothing, if that is about Jesus, then the beginning of verse 27 is also about Jesus, now, some of you have been told, and it's, if you believe this is fine, but you've believed maybe your entire Christian life that verse 27 is about the Antichrist. And here I am telling you, it's not about the Antichrist, but it's about the Christ. But that's what I believe, okay? And I'm gonna show you in the text why I believe that, all right? Verse 27, let's look at the beginning of it, the first part. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So two things happen here kind of with a dividing point. The first is that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That's the first thing that happens is a covenant is made by someone with many people. I believe the person making the covenant is Jesus. Then there's a halfway point and for half of the week, so half of that period of time, he shall at, at the halfway point, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So two things, there's a covenant made and there is an, an end to sacrifice and offering. And we have to ask the question, is the covenant good or bad? Well, if Jesus is making it, the covenant is good. Is putting an end to offering and sacrifice good or bad? Well, if Jesus is the one making it, it's good. And let me show you in scripture where I get this. Back in Isaiah 53, again, 
about the Messiah, right? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with who? Many. And he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So who is it that makes the covenant with many? It's the Messiah. Jesus is the one who is making the strong covenant. And it's not just with Jewish people. This is the point of the word many there. It's the point of the word many in, 50, in Isaiah. It's the point of the word many here, that it's beyond just, the, just Hebrews. It's now for all of the world, for all who have come to faith in Jesus. He makes this strong covenant. And so this is what we see in the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus begins to spread out and begin to what? Have conversations with people like um, uh, like the woman at the well, right? And he begins to have conversations with Samaritans and he begins to talk about the gospel spreading around the world that this new covenant that Jesus makes isn't for a few, but it's for many. So the strong covenant of verse 27 is made by the anointed one of verse 26 and it's a good covenant. And then at the halfway point, which I put the halfway point at the death of Jesus, something else happens. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, if the covenant's good and being made by the Messiah, then the end of sacrifice and offering is also good. Now, there are some that obviously don't see the covenant as being a good thing, and they don't see the end of sacrifice and offering as being a good thing, but I don't think that's the best Christian position. I could understand it if I was arguing from a Hebrew position. If I was arguing from a Hebrew position, I would say that maybe this is fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, which we talked about in Daniel chapter eight, where for a period of time, he stopped the sacrifice in the temple or with Titus in 70 AD, where he actually destroys the temple and stops the sacrifice. But do Christians view the ending of Hebrew sacrifice as a good thing or a bad thing? We view it as a good thing. This is probably why on Wednesday nights, those of you who are here, I was very passionate when I started talking about Hebrews chapter 10. Because I was studying this. I'm like, wait, this is a good thing because Jesus is the one who does it. Listen to Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So who is it that puts an end to sacrifice and offering? Jesus. And if I wasn't preaching this in Daniel chapter nine and I said, Jesus put an end to the need for constant sacrifice, everybody in this room would say, amen. But when I say that Jesus is the one that does it in Daniel chapter nine, some of you are like, well, wait, I thought that was supposed to be some other guy. But what if we just saw it as Jesus? That Jesus makes a covenant with Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus puts an end to the sacrificial system by his death on the cross where the Holy Spirit tears open the curtain, giving all access to God through Christ once and for all. So again, overlapping, who's the anointed one? It's Jesus. What covenant does he make? He makes a covenant with, all, with, with people of all nations. And who ends the sacrifice? Jesus does. Now we go back to verse 26. Again, they're laying on top of each other. So now we know the who, we kind of know what he did. Now look at verse, the middle part of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Now this prince, the, in verse 25, we had an anointed one who was a prince, Cyrus the Great. In verse 26, we have an anointed one, but he's not the same guy as the prince. He's not the same guy as the first one either. The anointed one is Jesus. Verse 26 is a prince who is to come. Now this is where telescoping comes into play. So, cause some of you are like, wait, I thought all of this was about the end times and we're still all the way back 2000 years ago. Hold on, I'm going to get there. But verse 20, the middle part of verse 26 is looking at a prince who is to come during the same period of time as Jesus, right? This is all happening in the same time. During the same period of time, a prince would come. About 40 years after the ministry of Jesus, a prince does come to Jerusalem. His name is Titus. He is a general in the Roman army, eventually the emperor of Rome. And do you know what he does? He destroys Jerusalem. He destroys it. And so Titus in 70 AD is the prince to come of verse 26. Destroys the city and the sanctuary. Sacrifices while still ongoing in the Hebrew system up until that point, make no mistake, had already been done away with by Christ four decades before because they were no longer necessary once Jesus died. Just because people kept doing it doesn't mean they were necessary to do because Jesus had fulfilled it already. Now, Jesus also tells his disciples using apocalyptic language about this very event in Matthew 24. We're told this, Jesus left the temple when was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these? Uh, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will, not be one left, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Temple Mount, you look on the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives, huge and glorious was the second temple. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They ask him two questions. When will this happen? And when will you come back? And what Jesus does, he does, I think the same thing that's happening in Daniel is he telescopes these two events. So he looks at them like through a telescope where they look side by side, but they're not. One is further away than the other. And what he first describes is what I think is being described in verse 26. And that is the prince to come, Titus, who comes and destroys the temple. And Jesus says this in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one also who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. What Jesus is talking about here in this section of Matthew 24, not all of Matthew 24, but in this section of Matthew 24 is his prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. And it was just four decades later. And it's the same thing that Daniel is seeing in this vision in verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what Daniel says will happen, the city will be destroyed, the sanctuary will be destroyed. Jesus says will happen, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. And guess what happens? In 70 AD, Titus comes in and destroys the city and the sanctuary. Now, we get to the, remember we're overlapping. So the second part of 27, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Now, this is where that telescope comes into play. I believe both in Daniel 9 and in Matthew 24, 
that what happens is we telescope the destruction of Jerusalem with a final period of tribulation, antichrist, and final battle between God and the forces of evil. So they're seeing these things as side by side, but they're not actually side by side. We know they're not side by side because we look on the past and see some of it hasn't already been done. And we look in the future and see some as not yet being done. So this is, the, the, if you wonder, so where's the coming of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2? And for the sake of time, I won't read that. But 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the man of lawlessness who will come and will be a destruction and will take his seat in the temple of God, which by the way, doesn't have to be a literal temple. The temple of God is the people of God. He'll deceive the people of God. He'll, he'll lead people away in the name of God, maybe. I mean, this is gonna be somebody who, who, who seems like People want to follow him. And these kind of people have come throughout history and one will come at the end. And they will come in the footsteps of guys like Antiochus Epiphanes, the small horn of Daniel 8. And they will come in the footsteps of Titus of, of AD 70 who destroyed the temple that Jesus looks forward to. They're coming on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. So coming on the wing of abomination, I think just means that this is coming in the footsteps of all of these little horn emperors, all of these rulers who have persecuted God's people. Ultimately, one will come. We see them kind of side by side, but eventually they're not. It's actually a now and a not yet. Then we get to the last part. So look at us, we're almost done here. The, the, the last section of 26 and the last section of 27. Verse 26 ends, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And the end of verse 27 says, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So do you notice the language is so very similar because I think they're describing the same exact thing. They're describing the wars and rumors of wars and the de desolation that is to eventually come before the end. But what happens in the end? God pours out his judgment on the desolator, God judges evil. Back in Matthew 24, again, there were two questions. When will this happen, the temple being destroyed, and tell us about your return. Now Jesus, telescoping the events, tells them about their return. Starting in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. So it has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if, there, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So by the way, Christians will live through this. Then if anyone who says, do you look, here's Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Paul affirms this as well in 2 Thessalonians 2. And you know what is restraining him now so that you may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So what's being described at the end of verse 26 in Daniel 9 and the end of verse 27 in Daniel 9 is looking past the destruction of the temple to something that is not yet come to a period of great tribulation, but one that God will end in a moment with the return of Jesus. So all of Daniel 9, at least the second two sections, 
find their ultimate fulfillment. Where? In Jesus. The first is fulfilling the promise of God to return Israel to Jerusalem, fulfilling Jeremiah, fulfilling Isaiah. The other two are Jesus. One looking at his first coming, the other looking at the end, the ultimate conclusion of his second coming. So what? The Lord is faithful to keep his promises, to conquer evil and gather for himself a redeemed people, all of which find the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Remember verse 24, one of the things that had to happen was to seal both vision and prophet. And sealing is, is that affirmation, right? That this is of God. So what God is doing is that he is sealing all of this. He is authenticating all of this. That this will be, this is true. It will be true. It remains true today and it will be true for all eternity. But let's just go back into our minds for that for a moment. If God has said this is true, there must be one who can fulfill it. And in the last piece of apocalyptic literature that we get in the Bible, we get an image of this, a very similar image, one where there is a scroll that is sealed, just as Daniel 9 is told that the soul will be sealed, that it will be authenticated from God. But then a question is asked, who can open it? I know I've read a lot of scripture today, but I want you to hear this. So picture this glimpse into the glorious plan of God as being authenticated and sealed by God. And then John's going to ask a question, who? In the world is this about? Who can open it? Who fulfills this? Listen to Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it on the back, sealed with seven seals. Seven, again. Completion. This is God's work. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing. That's Jesus. And though it uh, had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open and it seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to your God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The answer to the scroll that is sealed is inevitably Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly Jesus Christ. It must be Jesus Christ. He is the answer. He is the one 
who by his death on the cross put an end to imperfect sacrifice by making the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who took a covenant that was for a small group of people and made it a covenant of many. He is the one, my dear friend, who looks at you today and says, come to me and live. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one the only one on heaven, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth who can open the scroll because he is the one who defeated sin and death. He is the fulfillment of Daniel 9. And he is gathering for himself a people. And in gathering for himself a people, while we will experience trial and tribulation, he will at some point in the future, maybe today, defeat evil once and for all. The question is, will you be ready for that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus alone for the remission of sin, believing that he died in your place so that you may have life? If you have, if you believe that today, repent and turn to him. If you have believed that, then we celebrate together the one who can and has and will for all time open the scroll and fulfill the word of God as we glimpse his glorious plan. Let's pray together. Thank you, God for the good news that is found in Jesus. And whether I'm right about some of this minutia in here or I am not, I pray that we would all know that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is the one who can open the scroll. That Jesus is the one who gave himself in our place so that we may live. And now, as we go to worship him, may we do so in spirit and in truth, knowing God that you are in control of not only the universe, but our very destinies in it. May we worship him who is able to open the scroll, we pray in Christ's name, amen.